Well, very good morning, people of God. That's who you are. That's who we are. Don't forget it. I'm very happy to see your faces today, and it is very important that we gather together like this at least once a week to worship the living God and to be strengthened in faith and hope and love by Jesus Christ. For where two or three gather in his name, there also he shall be. That's a promise, and we're claiming it right now. We are continuing this morning in our sermon series, The Stories of Jesus, and we're looking at stories of things Jesus did, as well as stories that Jesus told, his parables. Uh, And the aim in doing this is to get more deeply acquainted and familiar with the one that we follow, to get a sense of what it means to be his disciples. And today, one of the most famous stories that Jesus told is going to help us do this. But before we look at that story, let me pray. Father God, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, may your spirit be our guide, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern. In Christ's name, amen. The parable of the Good Samaritan, and this should be printed in the bulletin insert, by the way, it's probably among the most well-known of all parables, and I'm sure many of you in the room today know it by heart because it's so very heartwarming. It's a very moving story. And at least from one angle, we've gotten the lesson of this parable uh, so well that we've named hospitals and nursing homes after it, we've named uh, relief agencies and even credit unions after this parable. To be dubbed a good Samaritan is a compliment of the highest order. Yet the problem is this. Many of us who relish and treasure this story may very well misunderstand it, or at least we miss the punch that it's meant to pack. I became quite aware of this when I was preparing this sermon, because when I gave this parable a close and careful reading, it rocked my world. And I hope the same thing is going to happen to you and me right now today. Along these lines, there are three things in particular I want us to focus on as we work through this text. Three points to attend. First, there's the core requirement of true religion. Second, there's the extent of that core requirement. And third, I want us to think about how we might begin to fulfill this requirement. You've got the core requirement of true religion, the extent of that requirement, and then I want us to think about what we might do to begin to fulfill that requirement. So let's begin with the core requirement of true religion. We saw last Sunday, we were looking at Matthew chapter 9 last Sunday, we saw that Jesus was always welcoming sinners into friendship. He was, he was, he is unstintingly open to people who were socially suspicious or morally outcast. And because of that posture, he raised the ire of a lot of the allegedly most religiously serious folks in his time and place, people that the New Testament sometimes calls scribes and Pharisees. And these guys were very, very suspicious of Jesus and his brand of religion because he was open, so open, to all sorts of questionable people. And it's for that reason that Jesus' opponents become increasingly hell-bent on exposing him as someone who's not really religiously serious as someone who was kind of lax about keeping the Torah or the law of God in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on with the lawyer that we meet today in verses 25 through 28. That's what, he, that's what this guy's attempting to do. By the way, when the text calls him a lawyer, don't think of him uh, as being an attorney, sort of like Chase McGill here in our congregation would be. That's not what it means. He was not a civil lawyer. He's a, a religious lawyer. He's a religious scholar someone who's very religiously knowledgeable and serious, and he's also very clever. And he's going to try to use that cleverness to trap Jesus. And the trap comes there in the first question he asks. It's in verse 25. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
In other words, what's at the heart of true religion? What's at the core of true religion? That's what the lawyer is asking. And he thinks he knows what Jesus is going to say. He expects Jesus to respond by saying something along the lines of, just go to God as you are and he will accept you completely. You don't have to change any of your values, any of your priorities. You don't have to change the way you live. And that would make sense because Jesus has been embracing all sorts of unsavory folks like tax collectors and prostitutes and other such sinners. But that's not how Jesus answers. He's clever too. And he knows God much better than this lawyer does. And so he responds to that question with a question. He says, you tell me, what does the law of God say about how a person inherits eternal life? And let's just say this is the question that our lawyer was born to answer. He can't wait to answer it. And he issues the perfect biblical response. Verse 27, you need to love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And that answer, by the way, was widely accepted by Jewish theologians of this time as the fantastic distilled summary of the religion of the Old Testament. Jesus knows that, of course, and so he affirms the lawyer's answer. Hey, guy, you've answered correctly. You're absolutely right. Which means, and this is for us, that the core requirement of true religion, the foundation, it does come to two things. Loving God, which is to say, delighting in God so much in your inner being that you can be content no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Loving God and also loving neighbor, which means meeting the needs of the people around you with the same force and enthusiasm and joy and purpose that we tend to meet our own needs with. Learning to be as happy when other people have their needs met as we are when we have our needs met. And so it seems that Jesus and this lawyer, at least at the level of principle, are in full agreement about the core of true religion, yet that's about to change. So fasten your safety belts. Let's turn now to the second point, the extent of the core requirement. And this is what blazes forth in the parable that Jesus tells. And he tells this story because the lawyer, he's full of questions. He asks a follow-up question. He says, okay, Jesus, we agree about the basic definition of true religion, loving God, loving neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Let's talk about that. Now, that might seem like an honest question, but it's not. Because we're told that the reason the lawyer is asking this question is so he can justify himself. Verse 29, so that he can justify himself. Now, what does that mean? What's going on here? Let me try to tell you. What the lawyer wants to do is to make this general, wide-ranging, seemingly boundless principle of neighbor love more manageable. He wants to make it more doable, make it into a box that he can tick. He wants to, he wants to know what the minimum standard is so that he can, perhaps with a little bit of effort, satisfy that standard and then go home and sleep well at night because he feels like he's done exactly what God wants him to do. It's, a, it's an attempt to self-justify, and Jesus will have none of it. Instead of making the neighbor love requirement more manageable and achievable and doable, Jesus raises it to an untold magnitude. That's the purpose of the parable. And in this story, it becomes supremely clear that our obligation, the obligation of all who would follow the way of Christ to meet the needs of all of our neighbors, it doesn't have any limits. It has no limits. Let me show you how this parable challenges the idea of limits in several eye-popping ways. First, Jesus challenges our tendency to meet the needs of people that we identify with, people that are like us, people we get along with, people that we share values with, people that we don't hate. 
This is made clear by the fact that the two principal characters in this parable are a Jew and a Samaritan. These are men from two people groups who at that time loathed each other. They loathed each other. The contempt is actually evident there at the very end of verse 37. Notice that the lawyer does not use the word Samaritan when he answers Jesus' final question. He just says, the one. Because this Jewish lawyer is not going to put a filthy word like Samaritan on his lips. And neither would most other Jews at this time. Now there's a backstory here. There's always a backstory. Let me try to give you the backstory in a nutshell. Seven centuries prior to the time of Jesus, the mighty Assyrians, that was the regional superpower at that time and place, they conquered the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And following that conquest, they moved their people into the region. And there was a lot of intermarrying. And so the faith of the Old Testament, the faith given by Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament, it got diluted. And the result of that dilution was the Samaritan people. And the Samaritan people didn't have much to do with all the Jews who lived around them, and neither did the Jews with the Samaritans. But the two groups had enough in common to disagree on who was right about God. So, for instance, they both worshipped at a temple. You need to do that, but not the same temple. They both claimed to be God's chosen people, but neither could imagine that God might have more than one chosen people. And they both used the Old Testament, but different parts of it. And they had fierce disagreements about what should be counted as part of the Old Testament scripture. The upshot is that these two groups viewed one another as religious impostors. A Samaritan didn't want a Jew sleeping in his bed any more than a Jew wanted a Samaritan sleeping in his bed. And that intense cultural and personal enmity between Samaritans and Jews was alive and fomenting at the time of Jesus. You you actually see it in Jesus' 12 disciples. They were products of this system. If you rewind to Luke chapter 9, you get a glimpse of this. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus and his posse are walking somewhere, and they come to a Samaritan village, and they ask for lodging, and they are refused lodging. Why? Because they're Jews. And how did the disciples react? Do you remember? They they asked Jesus to call down fire from heaven to burn up that village. That's the reaction. They were angry with many generations of anger. Jesus, of course, refuses to indulge those sentiments. And now, in our parable, he actually has the audacity to say that you need to love your neighbor, and that's anyone in need, including a Samaritan. Wow. Let's just say that if Jesus calls first century Jews, he says says to first century Jews that you have to do well, even to Samaritans, then there are no limits on the type of people that we have to do well by, as long as we encounter them in need. Let that sink in. But that's not the only way that this parable redefines the word neighbor. Secondly, in this story, Jesus challenges our tendency to limit our help to people that we perceive to be deserving. People we perceive to be deserving. People whose troubles and afflictions and struggles do not owe to poor decisions or bad judgments. Now, the original hearers of this story would have grasped this immediately because they knew about the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It was a dangerous road. It was a road that was known to be littered with bandits and thugs, and it had some really perilous stretches. One of these stretches, according to the commentators, was actually known as the Way of Blood. Why do you think that was? Because so many people had been mugged on that stretch that the soil had sort of a 
red color to it. Maybe that's where the Jewish man in the parable was actually beaten and mugged. The point is this. He should have known about that danger. He should have known that it was not smart to be on that road out by on his own, especially not at certain times of the day or the night, but he ventured on down that road anyway, and no doubt he did it at the wrong time and he was all alone. How irresponsible. How foolish. He brought it on himself. He got what he deserved. And so he does not deserve any of my help. Maybe that's what was in the minds of the priest and the Levite when they walked on past without stopping to help. But Jesus strikes down this type of limit too. He says, even if your neighbor's needs might be the result of bad decisions and poor judgment, guess what? You still owe them your care. You still owe them your assistance. Regrettably, that memo has sometimes been lost on Christians, on the church. It's sometimes been lost in the context of so-called Christianized civilization. I actually, a few years ago, sort of learned about this when I was reading about England's poor laws. The poor laws in England were enacted between the 16th and the 19th century, and this legislation made a very important legal distinction that was enshrined for centuries between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And these laws mandated that charity, and all the charity was, it was managed and distributed by the church at this time, they mandated that charity only be extended to the deserving poor, to that category of paupers. So in other words, these laws dictated that certain poor neighbors, based on criteria that are highly suspect, were undeserving of care and support. What those people needed instead was to be thrown into prison, and a lot of homeless people were thrown into jail and prison over these centuries in Britain. Now, at its best, the church opposed that way of thinking, and that opposition came through people like John Wesley. You've probably heard of him. It came through people like Anthony Ashley Cooper, the Earl of Shaftesbury. I will undoubtedly tell you more about him in a future sermon. And closer to our own time, this opposition to this way of thinking came through Mother Teresa. She took to heart Jesus stripping away of any limits to caring for the needs of our neighbors. She understood that if you judge people, you don't have time to love them. If you judge people, you don't have time to love them, which is why she taught and she lived that we should let no one in need come to us without leaving better and happier. That's a line to hang on to. There's one more limit to caring for our neighbors that Jesus bulldozes in this parable, and it's found in the example of the Samaritan. Whereas the priest and the Levites scoot on around the Samaritan, scoot on around the Jewish guy, the Samaritan, this enemy of the Israelites, he stops and helps the man on the side of the road, and he does that at enormous personal risk and at huge personal cost. After all, the bandits might still have been lurking nearby, and they could come and destroy him too. And then he opens his purse, and he basically issues a blank check, gives it to this innkeeper with whom he temporarily leaves the beaten man. Look at verse 35. He says, I want you to take really good care of this guy. Spare no expense. I'm going to pay you back whatever it costs when I return. That is a potentially incredible sacrifice because health care then, as now, was very expensive. It's very expensive. In sum, according to Jesus today, the call to love our neighbors is of untold magnitude. We are to help people that we might normally hate the sight of. We are to help people even if they might have brought their afflictions and troubles on themselves. By the way, according to the Bible, that is precisely what God does for us because 
all of our sins and woes and afflictions have their origin in sin, and sin has its origin in us, not in God. We brought it on ourselves. And number three, we are to care for our neighbors in need, to meet their needs, even when it puts a burden on us, even when it requires cost and sacrifice. This is what I call you to do. This is what it means to love your neighbor. Don't you dare try to limit it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Keep that in mind as we move on. Now at this point, you might be feeling like I felt when I finished studying this parable earlier in the week, which is to say a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit daunted. In fact, you might be thinking back to that lawyer at the very beginning of our text uh, who wanted to make the love, the neighbor command a little bit more manageable. Let's make this a little bit more reasonable. That's not such a bad idea. Maybe that's what you're feeling. That's what I felt. And that's understandable because Jesus sets a high bar here, a very high bar. How on earth do we strive towards that bar? How do we get the capacity and the power to fulfill the requirement, the core requirement of true religion, the full extent of the requirement of neighbor love? What makes it possible for us to extend that kind of love to the neighbors all around us? The parable presents at least two options, one of which comes up short. Let me talk about that one first. The first option is represented by the Pharisee and the Levite who pass by without lending a hand, verse 31 and 32. What you need to know is this. In historical context, these were extremely moral people. There was lots of religiosity in these people. These are, these are guys who would have given alms to the poor at the temple every week. They would have memorized all the Old Testament verses about helping the down and out. They would have been serious about their duties and their obligations to charity. Yet when faced with the opportunity to love a neighbor the way that Jesus says that we should, to love without limits, they come up short. They don't do it. They can't do it. Now, I'm sure that their moral principles and their convictions did make them somewhat charitable, that they did spur some good works, probably by engendering a little bit of guilt for the neglect of doing charitable works. And we all know that guilt can be a pretty effective motivator. Uh, when Cindy, my wife, wants me to do something that I don't want to do, like change a diaper at 3 a.m., she always reminds me that when I got ordained, I took a vow to read and obey Scripture, and that one of her favorite verses in Scripture is Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives, and that one of her, her top love language is acts of service, especially changing nappies between 2 and 5 a.m. Sometimes I reply to that, and one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 17.15, a nagging wife is like a constant dripping, dot, dot, dot. But at least 50, I mean 90% of the time, I do what Cindy wants me to do, and I change that diaper. It comes to this, gang. While moral convictions and the sort of guilt that they can elicit, they can motivate us to care for others, that's not enough to energize the astounding neighbor love that Jesus calls us to in this story, which is why we need another option. And what is that option? An experience of radical grace an experience of being in the place of the Jew on the side of the road and of having someone cross over that highway to help you and to save you, someone who owes you nothing, someone from whom you might be estranged culturally or personally, someone you might even consider an enemy. If you were in that situation, if you were there lying on the ground and an enemy saved you who owed you nothing, it would undo you. You would get up and start seeing people differently. How could you not? You would become a radical lover, an amazing neighbor. You would never be the same again. 
your neighbor love would have no limits. Any limits would begin to evaporate. You know what? This has happened. Because the gospel, the good news of the New Testament is that God himself did come into our world. He came into a world full of people estranged from him, a world full of lost and wrecked and dying people, people who brought it on themselves, people like me, people like you, people like all of us. And he came right to our road, and he crossed over that road, and he did that as somebody who owed us nothing, as someone that we'd set our hearts against, despite the fact that he was the very source of our life. And he cared for us, and he put us on his donkey, and he brought that healing at huge personal risk and at untold personal cost. In fact, it cost him his life. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he risked, he gave up everything. He breathed his last breath so that ultimately we don't have to breathe ours. And when you see that event, when you experience that for what it is, when you see Christ as your good Samaritan, it's going to change you forever. Makes it possible to go and do likewise to love our neighbors as ourselves, to meet their needs as generously and forcefully and purposefully as we tend to meet our own needs, to meet, to meet their needs the way Jesus meets our needs, with all joy, with all purpose. I speak to you in the name of the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.